Hello, my name is Robbie Ventura, and I am your host here at the Velocity Cycling Podcast, where our one goal is to get you to fast faster. There is no one way to have great cycling performance. What works for some of us may not work for others. We really want to expose you to some of the greatest minds in sports performance. And hopefully, we can try to figure out what works best for you to meet your goals and to meet your genetic potential. We're going to do one job and we're going to try to do it the best we can. And that is get you to fast, faster. Hello, everybody. I'm Robbie Ventura. I'm your host of the Velocity Podcast. We're here to get you to fast, faster. I have an incredible guest today, a good friend of mine, former teammate, just an absolute, I mean, a lot funnier than people realize. You get to know Kevin Livingston. I promise you, he will have you laughing um, after he gets to know you just a little bit. But Kevin Livingston in the studio, um, he's done all three Grand Tours. He's been top 20 in the Tour de France, um, sixth in the Dauphiné Libre, but kind of cool. Um, being kind of the first American to ever do the Vuelta. I think he's done it twice. But beyond that, uh, just a great guy, knows a ton about the sport of cycling, started a coaching company called Pedal Hard, very successful there, and just excited to talk to Kevin about not only his cycling career, but a little bit about the methodology and training and how it's changed over time, as well as how the coaching landscape has changed. So without any further ado, welcome, Kevin. Thank you for, uh, for being here. Hey, thanks for having me on. So yeah, Kevin, you've done, yeah, sorry, I'm sorry about oh, that. Just, I had to laugh when you when you said I, I giving me some credit. I don't know if it's due on my sense of humor, but I had a funny story. I was years after I retired, I was talking with um, Bobby Julik, and he he told me that uh, he told when he was in a French team, he told his teammates, he said, "Oh, you know, you ought to talk to Kevin Livingston in the bunch. You know, he speaks French. He's he's really funny guy." And, <laughs> and Bobby said, "Yeah." these guys were like, no way, man, that guy so looks so serious in the races and we're not, we're not going near him. He doesn't look very nice. And I, I told Bobby, I was like, you know what? I, I'd rather have that air of being in the bunch maybe than I was like, don't tell him, don't tell him to come talk to me. <laughs> it, it's like the mafia. Would you rather be loved or feared? Right. And it's <laughs> always feared is their answer. So, um, but there has to be some sort of trans like, like translation issue with, with humor. Right. I mean, I know you speak French yeah. and you speak Italian, but when you try to make jokes in, in Italian or French, doesn't it kind of lose something? I think even when you're, when you're exactly, I had teammates who spoke English really well, obviously. And um, I remember my first season with another first season, uh, first year pro in the team, Dutch guy, and we roomed a lot together. And, and I thought he got my sense of humor. And at the tour of Spain, which was in September. So you got to think all year long, you know, I'd spent all this time with this rider. And he said, Kevin, I used to, th I thought you were such a jerk, man, for so long. He goes, and then I figured, figured out you're just always joking around. And I was like, oh man, I felt really bad. I was like, but yeah, they don't, they don't get sarcasm, right? Cause sarc, sarc, there's so much nuance to being sarcastic that they take it literal because they know, I mean, it's hard enough to know the language and then to get some sort of nuance of sarcasm doesn't always, I, I don't and, think that always translates, you know? I found the same with French though. And once I started understanding my French teammates, you know, sense that, that you know, how they found the humor, it's, it, it's pretty funny. It's good. good to well, connect you like know, talk about like roommates. So like you said, you've had the same roommate from the beginning of the year to the end. Why did, why was that the culture? Why wouldn't they try to mix things up? Was it because you uh, kind of 
Yeah, we mix it up. Not not the same, but you know, you, you know, if you get in a five day stage race in Spain or something or Perry Nice, and you're with the same roommate, you know, it's a lot of time with each other. You're right on top of each other, and uh, then you know, maybe not rooming with guys all the time, but at the meals, we did everything together. You know, breakfast, dinner, um, in the bus together. I mean, the team, the riders are around each other a lot. We were roommates uh, for a race, I think, out in Oregon one time. But what do you think? I mean, never a long stage race, like, like a grand tour. Obviously, I've never done any of those. But tell me, like, what's the most important thing? I know we're kind of going off topic here. But what's the most important thing when you're a roommate with somebody for 20 days in a row? I mean, obviously, there's a lot of stress with the race. You're not always in the best mood. How? What's the most important kind of thing that you want to make sure that you're doing when you were a, to be a good roommate to your teammates? Uh, just kind of keeping your, your, keeping your shit in order, man, <laughs> like keep your stuff out of, you know, you, there's kind of these invisible lines, right? Like this is my area of the room. This is your area. Just be respectful of each other. And then probably the big one is the bathroom, right? So, you know, towels and uh, water and, you know, some of the guys had some pretty less tolerance, I guess, or extreme expectations you may not know. So you know, who knows, maybe they go off and tell the, the team, the team lead who's making the room assignments, but no, I just be respectful. Each, I think respecting each other's space, it sounds funny, but you need that little space to yourself where, you know, your stuff is kind of organized. <laughs> so we I have another funny story. I, I went, when I first turned pro, I was so afraid of one of our, my teammates, Sean Yates, he was like known as one of the just hardest man men in cycling you know you can go look up videos of the guy riding you know in mud and caked up you know cobblestone climbs and the guy was just known as a hard ass and I was at a race and I was in, in my head we pulled up to the hotel and I was thinking all of a sudden it dawned on me I was like there's no way they're gonna room me with Sean Yates I'm thinking that would be a disaster you know like this would so I'm, I'm like no they're gonna put me with you know like my friend George Hincapi we're gonna have fun and and it was classic uh Haribo so that's like the Haribo candy um so they give you these big bags of candy from the race and you know I'm like first year pro I can I'll probably eat like three pounds of that in one night night before the race no worries so um, I go and I looking at the room list. I mean, it was like a bad movie. I'm like going down the list and I see my name, L Livingston, whatever, 310. I go down. Who's, who am I rooming with? Going down the names and it's the whole team, right? So there's X's, there's 22 riders. I come down to the bottom. It's like Watt Yates. And I'm like, back and forth. Back and forth. I'm like, this is a mistake. This is a mistake. So I get in the room and he just starts messing with me like big time. He's like, and I had this bag of candy and he says, oh, my wife loves this. She loves licorice. And I don't know what I was thinking, but I'm like, hey, well, you can have mine and you can give it to her. And he's like, really? Are you sure? And I'm like, yeah, definitely. I don't eat candy. <laughs> so he took the bag. He took it. And then in my head, I'm thinking, oh, man, I just gave away all my candy. You know? So I, I was still, though, he left the room for his massage and he, and he looked at me and said, I want my, he pointed at his shoes and he said, I want my shoes clean. And if you knew Sean, he had this thing about his equipment, like he didn't mess with his shoes or any of his stuff or any riders for that, I guess their shoes. And um, so when he was gone, I just jokingly, I took his shoes and put them in the bathroom. And when he got back, he goes, 
he looked at me and he said, where are my shoes? And I said, oh, they're soaking in the tub. They'll be done. In it. <laughs> and he looked at me and he pointed at me and said, don't you dare F with me, boyo. It was funny. <laughs> and then after that, we, we actually went on to really form a, he was a really strong mentor to me in my, my first seasons there at Motorola. I mean, he, he would wait for me some days I get dropped and he could have been going in front groups and he had a real major influence on me. Um, getting me through my first tour of Spain and just an incredible, incredible guy, mentor. I know he's gone on to work and I can see where he'd be super valuable in that role with teams, especially with, with connecting with the riders. He had a special way like that. Yeah. That's, but it's cool that you, I mean, sometimes when you have the King in your room, you have to at least, you know, stand up for yourself a little bit. It (laughs) sounds like, uh, you got that, you got up the courage when he was doing his massage, right? He comes in with just a towel on you. He's exposed. Now I'm going to say a joke or whatever. Um, but anyways, that's great. That's cool. And I, I just, I always thought about how difficult that would be if, if you, if you're a roommate for 21 days in a row and your teammate is having a rough go of it and he needs some time alone and how you just manage all that. But I will tell you, um, probably not an easy thing to, to manage. Yeah, what You've got to have some stories, you know, what's your top story? <laughs> yeah. I was always trying to have as much fun as I could with my, with my roommates and some of them liked it and some of them didn't want to have fun. Right. You know, I had a roommate, Scott Moniger, that was real serious and he didn't love to have a, a whole bunch of fun. Um, yeah, <laughs> probably because he was always in the yellow Jersey and I was always just pack fodder. So, you know, I didn't have a lot to, I didn't need to get to bed at nine o'clock at night. I wanted to have a little fun and watch some stuff and do whatever, but um, yeah, I did a funny, he was, we were roommates one time and there was a bat in our hotel and, and I was so, uh, excited to catch this bat. And, and, and I was, I spent the whole night trying to catch the bat and he was so <laughs> frustrated. It was during Redlands. Um, but anyways, I did catch the bat, which was kind of funny. And then I brought him into our room and he was flying around and pooping all over Scott. It was, it was pretty crazy, but, um, put that aside here. I want to talk a little bit about the sport of cycling. I mean, Kevin, you have been you've been around it kind of since the beginning when 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 people were going over to Europe and experiencing Italy and Girona and different things. You've seen the sport evolve, obviously during your career. But then you were part of medalist sports. You've been involved in in pro racing in this country and and then coaching. You know what? How has this sport evolved for, from an athlete's perspective? Right, like a pro now versus a pro when you were on Motorola. What are some of the major changes you've seen, both good and bad? Um, yeah, good question. Uh, I think a little bit hard for me because just, I think when I started working on the events with medalist sports, pretty soon after I stopped competing, there's kind of a hard, it just kind of rolls, right? Time just passes and it's hard to say where there was a line of change or something changed. Um, you know, some of my observations, I, I think, uh, I definitely think like communication, like technology, with like us right now, Hey, we're on this video, we're, you know, talking and and we feel connected. And I just remember when I first started competing as a kid and going off to, um, but those were, these aren't experiences I would trade, but, you know, going to Canada or Guatemala at at 17 years old and living in Denmark when I was a senior in high school. And man, it was lonely. Like I remember being in Denmark and I had, I had nothing. I had no phone. I had no way to, I didn't have a calling card. I couldn't call my parents. I didn't, I didn't even, I remember this is a stupid thing, but I even have a watch. 
So like I would wake up in the night in this people's house and I'd be like, what time is it? Like, is it time for breakfast? Is it, it was bizarre, but uh, the family was awesome. Uh, I actually lived with a rider that went on to be a professional rider as well. We were the same age. That was really cool. But I just remember it was very lonely. But again, those were experiences that I feel like obviously shaped, you know, my, who I am, my life. But I, I, I look now and I think it's pretty cool that you could go live in Europe and um, still stay connected with some friends outside of the sport. Um, you know, it's not like 10 years later, all of a sudden I show back up in the U S haven't seen my grandparents. I haven't seen friends from high school. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like this huge chunk. So I think that's a positive, like the, the ability to just to feel a little bit more connected. Um, I know that's not really cycling related per se, Um, I think that's totally that's I mean, that's a great point. I mean, can you imagine kids today going and living somewhere with zero communication with their family, their coaches, their people? I mean, everything's gotten so you can change and pivot so quickly now because of communication. Yes. Yeah. Which probably, um, you know, I talked about that a little bit, probably is an added level of stress, too. Right. At some point, it's like, when do you cut off all those texts coming in from people at the Tour de France or when you've got to really shift into that high focus, um, you know, I, I, I try so hard. I think it's a, cur- a curse of being, having been an athlete is, you know, when I tend to do things, I, I like to just get involved in that moment for hours or days of what I'm working on. And so it's always, I think that's tough. Like that, that constant sort of expect expectation of instant, um, that instant communication, I think. That, so there's maybe a, a skill they they're developing that I would not have if that were the case, you know, going back. I mean, I don't know if it's a skill, but also I, can you imagine the pressure that's created from that constant interaction? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the social media and all the constant communication, the level, everybody has so much, you know, they have such an insight into what you're doing all the time, which creates expectation. It also creates stress. It also creates distraction. So I think, sometimes and sometimes things get misinterpreted and it's like they pop on the news and they're like front page you know it's like whoa I just that's not what I meant you know yeah yeah so yeah I I think it's a it's a blessing and a curse right I mean sometimes that isolation really allows you to get in touch a with who you are as a person right and you're not influenced by everybody else around you and secondly you're ultimately focused on yourself you don't have a lot of other things to take your energy and mind and, and recovery away um, but then again, the loneliness piece, I mean, that is yeah, like, yeah. that is very difficult for a lot of people to manage is loneliness. I think it's one of the toughest things that our current culture, you know, really has to deal with. And if they haven't learned how to deal with it, like you did when you were in Denmark, it, when it comes at an older age, it's really, it's really something that, that yeah. I think is a problem. So kind of cool. That's the pros and cons. How about training? How has training and racing evolved or changed? Um, observation of training obviously just watching how more detailed like the data the more the teams have the coaches uh instead of just having a director where no and no discredit to the directors most of the directors riders themselves they have a very strong understanding of coaching training but you see teams bringing in another element of um maybe a, a scientist or a trained, uh, you know, educated in school type um, level of sports science. And then they kind of combine that with the, with the real sort of world. I don't know what do you call that? Like a, a former rider, right? It's all, 
they're they're drawing from different areas and putting it all together whereas like you know we would have some of the a lot of the riders would go out and just have their find their own coaches right they would the teams would have coaches but they didn't necessarily expect that they were going to coach every rider in the team you know you had access to doing testing and things like that but you know, guys really wanted to have that trust. And I guess that's similar, you know, to athletes that I work with, they want to work with you and have you really reviewing their, their stuff. But, um, yeah, definitely the, um, we started training with power, you know, kind of mid or, you know, late nineties. I feel like we were some of the first riders on the power meters. We didn't really know what took a while to figure out what was going on, what, what that all meant. And, um, just seems like now they're, they're dialed, they're really dialed in. They, I don't, it's hard. It's hard. You know, you gotta keep an open mind and try to learn and everything, but also there's, you know, a little bit of the, you know, the way I learned and my experiences are going to highly influence my coaching. Right. So my coaching is a lot of, I'm a big believer in, I like, I love the data. I, I, fortunately my first coach started me on heart rate training. I, I read books, you know, on lactate threshold training with heart rate and stuff back in the late eighties. So that's a part of my training and coaching, but then there was an element where I really had to, I still, not that the guys don't today, but you know, I still had to really rely on sometimes like, Hey, I'm not feeling right. Even though my heart rate's right, you know, and sure enough, two days later, you have a cold or something. And yeah. um, so yeah, I, you know, for me, um, I see it as, you know, there, there's this there's this component of allowing the data to help you understand kind of where you're at to create reference points of, of your current fitness level to make sure that, you know, you're adding the right amount of stress. But, you know, the, 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 the philosophy and the thoughts and the ideas around training are the same when we were kids as they are now, right? You have to yeah, stress yeah. your body more than you're comfortable and then you have to allow it to rest. And I think what I what I fear is happening in the world of, of sport right now is data is becoming the only thing that people look at and yeah. we're not paying as close enough attention to actually how we're feeling. I mean, we have these aura rings that are telling us how we're recovering. We have all these power meters that are telling how powerful we are, but there's this inner compass that needs to be honed as you as with experience right the reason why you're a great coach is because you understand all the data but you also understand the value and the experience that comes with just riding and training a lot and understanding how your body behaves because the interesting thing about training in my book is we all behave differently we all respond differently there's a lot of things that work for some people and not for others and a big part of that along with the data is really how you're feeling and i think one of the challenges and one of the things that I've seen with athletes that I've worked with and watched is how people feel mentally, how yes. excited and happy they are doing different things plays a big role to how long and how well they're going to be down the road. Short term, we can handle anything, but long term, which really matters in life, sometimes the work that we're doing is more than we can handle mentally over time and other things start to fall apart. Maybe our power, our thresholds going up, but we're not happy. We're, we're, we're overdone. You know, our work is kind of falling apart. So I think that mental aspect of enjoying the process gets lost sometimes when you're so data focused. Yes. Yep. Those are great points. I, I, yeah, I agree. I think the, the mental sort of awareness, right. Of what's, what's going on. And also just like in your training, looking at the data, like you just said, like predicting mental 
yeah. mental stress, <laughs> fatigue, accumulation, or how it's going to accumulate. That's a great, I love that. Cause I, I'm my career. I spent, I, I, anytime I, if I get some younger athletes and they're willing to got some questions, um, I'll just, as much as I can, I'll share with them. Uh, my son has a, a, a lacrosse tryout for a club team this weekend and he's really nervous. And I was like, Oh, here's my opportunity. And right before he was going to bed uh, one night, I said, Hey, you, you know, you can practice lacrosse tonight for 10 minutes. And he said, wait, what do you mean? I said, you can lie in bed and just picture yourself making saves on some big players. They call it getting, what does he call it? It's peppered with balls. You know, he's a goalie. So they just peppered. rip these balls at him and he knew he knows he's going to go against some big shooters, right? Some guys that are recruited division one already out of high school. And, and I told him, I said, man, you've, been up against guys like this before just picture yourself having an awesome tryout and just making big saves and big clears he's like yeah he's like that's a good idea you know and I'm like yes because I, I do yeah that mental it's just so important and yeah you, you can what happens with the data is your coach is laying it on thick and you don't realize this the amount of energy it's taking to like get through these workouts and like suffer and you know let's face it you know, cycling is a sport for people that like to suffer, you know, so I guess most fitness, you know, enthusiasts that search out, whether it's CrossFit or running or, you know, there's a certain element there that pain equals, it makes you feel good, right? There's some, there's some endorphins and things coming from that. So you got to be careful. And I always thought when I raced on my mental, this is going to sound funny, but I would sometimes be in the tour and think that I tricked people that I, the only reason I was there is because I was just mentally, I, I was mentally stronger, like physically, I wasn't talented enough to be there. Like I somehow found a little, a little loophole to get in there. And I, and you know, you get dropped on a day and you're like, man, I've kind of been exposed, you know, like I used to get frustrated when <clears throat> I felt like my body wouldn't follow my mind. Like it wouldn't cooperate. It was like, Kevin, this is, this is all your little motors got, man. <laughs> Go to the, you're done for the day. That used to make me so mad, so frustrated. So I really prided myself throughout my career on like mental, mental preparation, mental toughness, and just being really positive, trying to be as positive as possible. Yeah. If, if I could say like one, like just general thought, and, and this is probably because, you know, I'm kind of from an older era is, you know, mentally, I think, the athletes, you know, maybe a few, uh, a few kind of not decades. Yeah. Maybe decades back just had a different mental attitude. They were kind of like put on your suspenders and go to work and get this done. Right. And I think that's easier to do when you have less distractions and you have less tech and you have less mm -hmm. stuff. Right. Nowadays, I think the, there's a lot more mental stress and strain with all of the technology, all of the stuff that they have a, 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 to look at, right? They're looking at their power meters constantly. They got a microphone in their ear. They're being told to do a certain output. They have all this training and preparation. They have recovery metrics. And with all of that, right, I think the, the athletes today have a lot more to think about, right? So they just yeah, can't, it, it's gotten more complicated, Mm -hmm. I mean, back in the day, it was pretty simple, right? You're going to go do this. You're going to go knock that out and it's going to be done. Either you're going to can or you can't. And now with all these choices and options and things to think about, I think it's a little tougher nowadays to almost be mentally tough than it was with a simple, the simpler kind of life back in the day. Now, 
I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't know if, if all that extra data helps them uh, to, to make less mistakes because of it. And I think it probably does, right? I, I think mean, there's... I, there, that's a I good point. I kind of wonder if the, the, I mean, the level is just amazing. Like these guys are just... Yeah. Yeah. And the guys are all dialed in and just sharp and it's impressive. So yeah, yeah I think there's definitely a, an up, there's been an uptick in level and to maybe what would have been you know, to mix the generations, let's say, or the, you know, I think that they, they can say like on a day, maybe I was like, Oh, I need recovery today. Well, maybe I could have handled a little more stress that ride that session and taken a recovery the next day. And maybe I would have got a better response and, and kind of been like more where they're getting now with their training, you know? Yep. Um, because yeah, I think it's what I really liked the last years. Um, this, I just popped in my head when you said we're talking, is is also there they've kind of grown up with this the younger guys right the guys in yep. their 20s um and so they're maybe more adapted without knowing right they don't have to take on something new this is kind of what they're used to but they're still that's still a stress right yep but um i think it's cool that younger guys are just coming on the scene and there's no you know it's cool to have the old school respect of the older riders and everything but these guys have no I mean, they're 19 years old and they're yeah. winning these huge races. And think about all the, um, that rider and, and this, I don't know anything about him. I just follow him in the media. And I think he's an awesome rider, that Belgian, uh, the Remco, Evan, Evan Pohl, or yeah. sorry, I'm butchering yeah. his name. Uh, that guy's just a phenom, you know, and he crashed, uh, you know, he, it was crazy. Like that's so scary. He went off a bridge, you know, yeah. and fortunately he had a major injury, but he, um, he ended up being okay, but he he's following Nibali who is a seasoned pro and think of the number of descents that Nibali or Nibali has done in his career. The guy's an awesome descender. He's known for his skill. Yep. So Evan Bowles kind of at a disadvantage, right? He's 10 years behind in sort of gathering that kind of experience of descending. But he's yep. already there. He's in the front group. And I'm not saying that's why he crashed. That's not. Right. I'm just saying I'm showing you the difference in level that he was there. Yeah. And, and he's 19. And and then he comes back so quick. And um, I think it's awesome seeing the younger guys just come in. They have no. That's pretty mentally tough, in my opinion. They're like, I don't care who's been here, who's been the guard. Like, I'm here to win races. And that's that's made. I think that's made the road cycling pretty exciting. Oh, to me, road cycling today is 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 incredible, and it's because of the depth, right? I mean, back in the day when you were around, there was you know ten or fifteen guys who were going to kind of animate the race, and there was going to be eighty guys that were going to help those ten or fifteen guys animate the race. Now you have eighty guys that can animate the race, and twenty guys that are going to help those eighty guys, and it's just it's made everything more stressful because when there's that many people that are that good there's only so many spaces on the podium, right? There's only so many spaces in that. Only so many spaces on the road. <laughs> right. On the road. It's just gotten, it's gotten to a level and the speeds they're going, the power that they're putting yes. out, the, the, the force, everything is just multiplied. And, and obviously power they're, climbing, they're climbing, the climbing times are getting faster. And yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's really, really I, impressive. I just, some I of that, wonder. We can't go into everything, but, you know, also just the technology. I mean, when I think back, like some of the bikes I rode and the weight of the bikes and it's yeah. just, it's wild. 
the, the speed of the wheels, the, the, the aerodynamics, my, I mean, everything's integrated. My current road bike is, is old. I've had it a couple of years and um, it's like way better than any bike I ever raced on. People are like, hey, when are you getting a new bike? I'm like, I don't need a new bike, man. That thing weighs like 16 pounds. What, what am I going to do? Yeah, for sure. For sure. How, how is nutrition? Changed? I know, I know Kevin, in just in terms of you personally, um, I've known you when you were a professional on Saturn, postal service, COFIDIS, you know, um, telecom, you were obviously very lean, tall and lean, but you had some muscle on you. Um, and then afterwards, you know, you started playing hockey, got a little bit bigger. We did a couple of races in, in, in Florida together and you were probably over 200 pounds. Talk about that. Like, like, I mean, you've kind of gone up and down in weight probably two or three times since you were a professional. I don't think that's uncommon, but I think, I, I think you figured out why. Yes, I think so. Um, yeah, it's just been a, you know, like anything in life, just a journey. And I think that it's, it's funny. I look back the first few years that I'd stopped racing, I was not, I mean, I was still in pretty good shape, you know, and it was, it's just funny, the mentality, all the cyclists know that, uh, the weight is just this bizarre thing in the sport of cycling. And, um, because power to weight is so important, you know, and, you know, I probably only weighed about 15 pounds heavier for several years, but when I would go work at these events like medalists and I was lifting weights and I was staying in great shape, I felt, I felt great, but everyone that saw me was like, Oh my God, you're so bit, you're so fat now you've gotten so big. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, you know, and that kind of, you're thinking, I did, I really, you know, they're like, I feel great. I always joke with my wife. I'm like, I have the opposite problem. I, I look in the mirror and I'm like, yeah, I look good. You know what I mean? <laughs> this looks good. So I guess that was a, that was a good uh, good thing. But then I, I think you know, as life, I, I we had children and my kids and and life stress. We all have it, and no excuse. But just the years start ticking by, and I'm coaching and trying to support my family, and just life is there's more important things than me being able to go out and ride four hours a day, and. Um, kind of woke up one day in my early forties and I was like, man, I'm just out of shape. Like I'm, I'm just not an athlete anymore. What happened to me? You know? And so I kind of just, I think it just took, it was like a tipping point. I was just kind of fed up. And so I, I just at that time, I must've been searching some things on the web, like fasting or dieting or how to lose weight or something. And, um, of, because of course that's how my old psyche thinks, right? Fitness is, is just, you go right to that that um obsessed that ocd thinking of weight so came across some like channels on fasting and different um doctors and people sharing you know so so much incredible resources you can find and i i just started following a program and i was real motivated and just started bringing me back to some things we used to do when when i raced and um just started kind of having fun with it experimenting more so than you know, putting the hammer down and being miserable. And, and even in that, I feel like the last three years, I feel like I've been really vested in like trying to lead a, I call it a, a fasting lifestyle or a low eating frequency lifestyle. That's just been my approach. It's not, I'm not saying it's the only way to do it for your health or the only way to go, but I've, yeah, I've found some success with, it. I've done some Ironmans or half Ironmans and kind of dabbled with going really low down again to feel really strong and um, but I just kind of use it to manage my health and I, I feel great. So I look back, I'm like, 
oh man, if I just had a little bit more knowledge racing. And I think that's another thing these guys have is they're just more in tune with the nutritionists and things. And not to say we didn't have nutritionists, but our, our team would be just like, show up. Like you didn't show up to the Tour de France overweight. You know what I mean? Like you showed up whether you didn't eat for two days or I don't know, whatever it took to get there, but you didn't really know what we were doing. We were just like dieting, you know? Yep. And so I feel like I could use that knowledge and, and I, it wouldn't take what it's taking me now. Like if, if a pro rider applied like 10% of like some fasting, I'm sure they would just like, it would just dial them in and so quickly and you hear the teams, you know, do some of this fasted training or fasted workouts and things like that. So, yep. um, yeah, I love the topic, but cut me off. No, but no, I, I think one of the interesting things that we talked about yesterday was, you know, as a professional cyclist, you become so efficient at, yes. at utilization of fuel, right? Um, you become you become hyper um, sensitive to to fuel because your body becomes more and more and more efficient at burning fuel. So you can have less fuel and last longer on it, right? Your aerobic capacity increases. You're able to you know preserve glycogen and all these things are are adaptations your body makes when you ride five to seven hours a day, day after day after day. Yes. So when you stop doing that, your body's still super efficient, right? And unfortunately, if you eat normally, right, like a normal person eats, that was, those 2,700 calories a day will last you three days, where for <laughs> a person like myself who's inefficient, it only lasts me three quarters of a day. So naturally, I think cyclists have a challenging time. Professional cyclists who are very, very extreme in their training and their adaptations take, have a little bit more difficult time keeping their weight down for a while. Yes. I, I think you see that in athletes across the board. So I, when I get training people, I always kind of warn them. I'm like, yeah, you're going to be a lot, probably uptick in your hunger and you're going to rev your metabolism. You may be able to eat a, a little bit more for a while, but as you make the, the training adaptations, you might find you just don't need as many, like you're saying, you have to be a little more precise with your calories to, to, if you're, if you're interested in a certain weight, right. A certain race weight. Um, and you see that, you know, people get training for a marathon and it's the first time in their life or a, a long endurance cycling event that they've ever just trained to do something really long. And then they build that some of that, maybe it's, um, you know, a, a more efficiency with their fat metabolism versus glycogen. And it's, and then all of a sudden you're like putting on weight, even though you're riding, you know, so it can almost like backfire on you if you're not aware of what you're doing, because you do want to become like, to your point, you know, you want to be, I guess, if the word's efficient, um, that's part of part of that level of fitness. So there's a, there's sort of a trade-off there, right? It's, yep. it's a trade-off and <laughs> I'm not blaming that on, but I definitely, yeah, I, I, from my own experience with everything, I joke, I, I feel like I, you know, if I don't do anything, I, I don't burn anything. Like I just, my body is so just low burning, just efficient again for me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you, th if you think about it, when people come in and say, Hey, I want to lose a bunch of weight, I'm going to start riding a ton. No, and, no, no. and the, and they're true. Cause they're going to burn a lot more calories. Right. But yes. they're also going to get a lot hungrier. Right. So when you finish a bike ride, you eat. And if you've ridden for an hour and a half and you've burned, you know, 700 calories, and you eat 700 calories, 
it, it's it's a it's it's a level. But the problem they don't understand is is their body keeps requiring less. Yes. So carbohydrate, and you eat the carbohydrate, it turns the fat eventually. So I think one of the challenges and one of the things that I tell people right away is you need to maintain strength training. That keeps yes. the engine fi- firing, right? That keeps that metabolic rate going up versus right. down. And, and, and the muscles deep. revs them up a little bit. That yeah. So I, I, there's studies, right, that show that like endurance exercise, you you have a quick fall, like you're burning your high metabolism during the workout, high demand, and then when you're done, it just kind of falls off pretty quickly. Like if we do a cycling workout today. It's not like the whole day the metabolism is is kind of stressed or up. But to your point about uh, strength training, the demand, the breakdown of the muscles has a higher demand to recover and and to to be anabolic, to build. So that you're right. I think lifting, um, that's something I'm dabbling in now. I've reintroduced lifting for the first time in 20 years into my training, just personally for fun and for fitness and I'm noticing a difference even after like six workouts. So yeah, for sure. So we have a we have a resting metabolic rate machine in our lab, and and um, we have both endurance athletes and we have strength training athletes that that take that resting metabolic rate test. And what we've seen firsthand is when you take a person do a resting metabolic rate and you give them lots of aerobic stress over lots of duration, their 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 resting metabolic rate goes down. Mm-hmm. If you do lots of strength training, the resting metabolic rate goes up. It requires more calories, right? Because exactly what you said, the the the, the furnace and the and the muscle building requires like yes. inefficiencies metabolically, whereas aerobic training creates efficiencies metabolically. Yeah, that's a great. Yeah, that's a. I love that's a great. Uh, yeah, and I, and I think these kids, and these kids today though they they understand this. I mean, like these all the young psych. When I was a young cyclist, I didn't do a lot of strength training right? I just did a lot of aerobic work. I was naturally good on the strength side. So I figured I didn't need to do it. And I always was one of those guys that was always overweight. And I couldn't, I couldn't always I probably ate too much really at the end of the day and didn't train enough. But at the end of the day, um, I think it's an important note for, for, for our listeners is to understand that doing a lot of aerobic training is going to reduce your metabolic uh, rate a little bit. So and to that too, like, I think that you have to be aware of also your age, right? So, you know, I definitely have had some different experiences here, even in my forties. And even now after approaching 50, it's kind of fun as a coach because you start to feel like you're, you're having continued experiences like you did as a, when you're a professional athlete that you can share with your, with your athletes, you know? So, yeah, um, and I love some of the, I love the the kind of you see, you hear people say this. You just can't out train your nutrition, right? You can't out exercise a bad a bad approach to your diet. So for sure, you got to address it. And I think you know, starting in your late thirties, early forties, it becomes a real a real big reality. So the last question here, we're going to talk a little bit about coaching. You know, you've been coaching cyclists, triathletes, and even non non endurance athletes, soccer players, and whatnot. For a while now, how have you seen the the coaching landscape change? What has been some of the key things that you've had to evolve to kind of keep up with this ever changing market? And 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 where do you kind of see it going over these next ten years? Again, that oh, that's tough. That because I'm doing things now that I, you know, I see like I, I started on spreadsheets and 
I, going back to the start of our conversation about getting overwhelmed and all this stuff, another one of my philosophies is like the basics. Like I'm a big believer, like you got to start with the basics and have those foundations no matter what, no matter how great technology is. And like, if you don't have like the right bike fit, we'll just talk cycling, right? If you don't have the right bike fit, you don't have the right shoes, the cleats set up. Um, you haven't been sort of instructed or really learned how to approach, how to sit on your bike and, and turn the pedals over. Like those are the basics, right? You've got to develop the neuro skill, like how to pedal and start putting in the time in the saddle. Um, and so I think, again, it, over the years, it's probably just happened naturally with time. And I haven't noticed that, you know, I went from spreadsheets to uh, or writing my training out to people on paper and faxing it to them to spreadsheets, thought that was big. And then using um, a system like training peaks and then people started uploading their data to there. And um, then the workout started becoming, uh, instead of just me laying it out for you, what you're going to do. And now I got to build these blocks and it's, it's like this exact, you know, Oh my gosh, I missed a second at, you know, 200 Watts that just blew everything. My workout's over. And um so again, you know, I'm limited. I'm going to be limited with my abilities uh, based on my experiences and my how, how I've come along. I try, I try to keep an open mind and keep up with, like I said, studying the fasting or the, um, you know, stuff on ketones and ketosis and carbohydrates. Just so trying to keep up with all of it, but um, didn't really answer your question. That's just where I, that's where I feel. No, I, I I think that that's good. I I think you know, sometimes people try to try to just glom onto the latest and, and greatest technologies or things that are going out there. And I just, I, I caution coaches to do that. I, I think understanding what you know and kind of what, what has worked for the athletes that you've worked with, what has worked with you, and then really keeping things as simple as possible. And I think oftentimes people get excited and they want to make things more complicated than they need to be. And Keeping things simple, I think, is is something that we're getting away from to some degree. Um, we're also kind of losing some of the fun um, and the excitement of experimentation. I think um, people get so locked into a schedule and a program and a workout that they lose the ability to give themselves some flexibility. Uh, yeah. Every single day they do a workout, right? I mean, one cool thing about Velocity and our workouts is, hey, we have an on-demand library that you can choose from and have a bunch of different coaches to be motivated by. I still think being excited and motivated to do a workout and the power is a, is a part of it, but really the learning and becoming a good bike rider, like you said, the basics, learning how to pedal, learning how to yeah. shift. Those are things that are getting missed because they want to do two minutes at 200% and then a half a minute at one. I mean, it's, it's just the skill component, the, the, the learning component, which, which is motivating for me. It's like, I need to keep learning and, and, and building my, my skill set, and I feel like sometimes we get so wrapped up in power output that that gets missed nowadays. You you just said uh, that's some great stuff, and and that you just made me think of something that to our to, we were talking about like the newer generation or what's new and what's changed. So it's almost like a caution, like warning to maybe you're an age group athlete or you're coming into cycling a little bit older. Let's say in your in your, you know mid twenties even. We all know like when you're a kid and you learn a skill, like you learn it quick and the brain, there's something happening there where it's such a deep learning and it's such a strong connection to the uh, motor skill or the brain connection required. So 
to, to the point of um, these young riders being able to descend at 18, 19 years old and have these, you know, they're, they're grasping those skills so quickly. But like when you go later in life, like, you know, you and I joke a lot, like people probably may not know how incredible of a hockey player you were. Um, and I started playing hockey. I mean, I was, I was in jeans and a Giro helmet at the local <laughs> ice skating rink, 40 years old, holding on to the boards with hockey skates on. And no one else was there that knew me. You know, and I, I felt so, I was ridiculous. But I, you know, I wanted to be Robbie Ventura, you know. Oh, God, to, please no. And, um, but, you know, through a lot of air, a lot of falling, a lot of, I, over the next, like, four years, I, I stick to the basics on the skates because I'm learning a skill like that at 40 years old. Same a little bit for me with swimming. But this younger when you're younger, you grasp that stuff so quick. So if you're older, especially age group coming into something, you got to focus on the basics. And um, another famous uh, saying I like to say to people, I'm like single leg takedown. And they're like, what does that mean? I wrestled in high school or grade school and a little bit in high school. And I just mastered the single leg takedown. I could take down most any guy with a single leg. That's one move. I had guys on my team that would do these fancy throws and they would try to catch you and show off and do something really fancy, but you get one, you get the basics down your balance and how to properly execute and catch that hole. And same with, same with sport. If you want to be eventually kind of an elite at your level, what you feel like your goals are, you do have to really put a lot of time into the basics. Blocking. I say blocking and tackling. Like throw a perfect spiral over the tight end with a crossing pattern. What wins games is blocking and tackling. Yes, yeah. Like we never see that. You always highlight the super, the sports center play, the guy caught on his fingertips. Like, but how about the guy that's sitting there every single day beating his man with 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 a good block, right? So I think or or how about the rider in the group that is drinking his hydrate, doing their hydration, doing their nutrition. It's a long race, but someone else is looking at the power meter. Oh, I think I can do this. And then all of a sudden at the end of the race, here comes the guy that was, you know, see you later. No legs are done. So yeah, the basics are big. It's a big. And I, and, and, you know, back to kind of like, you know, some of these, some of these elements uh, as it relates to training, I think, um, you know, when we think about what's successful across all the athletes, it's skill development, right? Some people might need more threshold work or VO2 max work or whatever because of their energy systems. But I think the cool thing about our ideas and and philosophies, especially here at Velocity and why you're such a great coach for Velocity is because skill and technique is really what's missing when you buy a plan off the internet or you go to like a, a, like a trainer road and put it in there. I, I think ultimately the things that are, that are, that are the most important to keeping people safe as well as getting people faster outside is the power is important. Don't get me wrong. Nutrition, your weight, all that stuff's important, but teaching people how to maintain steady state cadence over varying terrain or teaching people the importance of that little nuance of tra- of up and over when you're doing that, like you were teaching in your class with, with climbing and the importance of being able to control power in a very small window so you don't detonate when you are climbing and you're max out max. And teaching that stuff, you can write it all you want, but having it come from you, a person who's been in those positions a lot of times, really gives the credibility to the workout but it teaches something that doing a workout that is in a training plan just doesn't give you. And that, and that is to me, 
what excites me about what we're doing here. We're blending the old, the basics with the new yes. power, yeah. and we're teaching those skills that I think bring people to a higher level. And honestly, it's a heck of a lot more fun. Hearing your story about when you gave them the gas a little bit during the picture day, I mean, <laughs> that is also what's missing in workouts is the fun. And yes. hopefully, you know, you experienced a little bit of that during your velocity classes. Yeah, definitely. It's been a lot of fun and I appreciate the opportunity. I really be great to get, you know, people on this platform and, and interacting and, and just evolve and be a, like you said, a fun yet very um, covering all the bases, right? The technical and the, the data and being, being covering that while, while having fun. Cause yeah, you suffer so much. You got to figure out a way to, like I always joke, yeah, you kind of amuse myself. Maybe it's not amusing to other people. Uh, when I tell some of those stories, but, um, no, they're great. <laughs> no, and I also think it's really important it, what you bring to the platform too, is you don't always have to be on your limit to grow. Right. I mean, I think no. some of these easier, more controlled efforts around tempo and lactic threshold, or even below that for a man, as long as you're working on a skill and we did some really high cadence work with you. Yes. And I will tell you, I, maybe I didn't feel it from a power perspective, but some of those super high cadence intervals, were just as challenging mentally and physically than some of the high intensity work that some of the other coaches do. So I think that balance uh, is really important. It's really a lot more fun to do an easier ride when I'm learning or when I'm working on a skill in the process. Yes. And, and as you know, like there's, um, there's some missed parts of the, what you're seeing, how the professionals are getting really to where they are. You you might only see the fun or not, I won't say fun or the the harder workouts, but they'll, if you can get them alone or talk to them about their training, what you would find is that they're not just training that day. They're, they've got an overall look and they've got confidence and you got to trust your training and have confidence in it. Not always try to be like, well, I'm just going to do a little more just to make sure, you know, because those systems don't develop if you don't spend time in them. And I think you would back me up in that when you when you look at the traditional zone breakdown of training, what doesn't really get talked about a lot or coached is that you've got to be so strong in zone one. So we'll call it zone three underneath your threshold. Yep. But to do that, it just takes so much time. You've got to just put in the time. And that's not really like glamorous, right. cool training to talk about. You know, oh, what'd you do today? I did five hours in zone two, you know, changing up my cadence. Be like, really? You didn't do any threshold or VO2 max or, um, yeah. so yeah, just being, um, I always tell my athletes, like you'll impress me more if you follow the plan and you have discipline to the plan. I, I, I already know you're, you know, tough and like to suffer. I, you know, that's why you signed up with me. And I, I already know that I have that respect for you. So I, I like seeing that discipline of, of the plan and also realizing that you're just not training every day. It's not just that workout. You've got, you've got the next weeks laid out in front of you. So it's got to all fit together. Awesome. Well, thank you, Kevin, so much for this time. Uh, I know you got all kinds of stuff. I think you're getting ready to do another velocity class, which we're super excited about. Yeah. Thank you everybody for listening uh, to the velocity podcast where we're here to get you to fast faster. I appreciate it. Lots of other podcasts in our library. Um, but if you get a chance, check them out. Um, hopefully you'll come in and join one of Kevin's classes on the Velocity platform at vqvelocity.com. So long and thank you.